0: Let's get started. This episode is special. It's a lecture given by Professor Francis Hutchins, a cultural anthropologist at Bellarmine University here in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Hutchins received his MA from the Patterson School of Diplomacy and International Commerce from the University of Kentucky, and his PhD from the University of Wisconsin, where he did research on the effect of ecotourism on the indigenous peoples of Ecuador. Frank has been doing field research on the indigenous communities of Ecuador for more than 35 years in different ways, but he started off in the Peace Corps there in 1983 and he continued with the Fulbright Fellowship in Ecuador in 1997. Dr. Hutchins has published five peer-reviewed articles and three books or book chapters and regularly gives papers at international conferences on anthropology or geography, or global health. Professor Hutchins teaches cultural anthropology, medical anthropology, human geography, among other courses. He takes students to Ecuador or Peru for study abroad courses every summer. And I know from personal interactions with Dr. Hutchins that he's also actively involved in the community here in Louisville. So here it is, Dr. Francis Hutchins. The title of his talk is Black Death to Evil Eye, The Anthropology of Infectious Disease. He starts the lecture off with a request of the audience.
1: Alright, breathe in. Feel the air pass through your nostrils and move into your nose. You're alive. Good thing, right? So is that breath you just took. When we inhale, our nostrils capture millions of invisible particles. Dust, pollen, sea spray, volcanic ash, plant spores—these specks, in turn, host a teeming community of bacteria and viruses. This is named Wolf, a microbiologist. They don't look exactly like that, <laughs> uh, but there are some pretty nasty characters uh, in that lung full of air that you took in and exhaled. Now, in the context of thinking about this, these mini universes. That we all live in and breathe in <laughs> and out. Let's think about uh, on a global scale, what we might term globalization here. Um, and what this does is it helps us begin to imagine these billions and billions of microscopic invisible things out there in the world and how they're moving around and the role that humans play in that movement. So obviously air transport, as we said here, multiple planes are going in and out of Louisville, and especially the UPS planes are going abroad. And so there's potential uh, movement back and forth, of lots of microbes through that process. If anyone's ever gone to a live global flight tracker, then it's pretty revealing uh, when you look at the number of planes in the sky at any one moment. So this is live. It's global. We can, go, we can click on any one of these, and the information comes up um, on the left-hand side, uh, what airlines it is, what flight it is, where it originated, where it's going. Uh, and you can just sit there and stare at this, as I've done before, uh, and imagine you know, all the, the various things that are moving around the globe just in this process. So this is only one process that's going on right now. But uh, conceivably, you would think that in every one of those, there's at least one living, breathing human body, uh, and in many cases, multiple living, breathing human bodies. Uh, maybe you've been one of those bodies at one moment, and mm-hmm. someone uh, has coughed throughout the flight, and you start to think, what's going on here? How might it affect me eventually? Uh, but This just gives you an idea of when we say globalization, This this nails it to something particular that's going on. Massive movements, greater than any time in history, of human beings, and not just human beings. I mean, also on these planes, there are microbes that are being carried in other ways. Uh, There are animals on these planes, there are foods, there are other things that travel than just human beings. Uh, We could also look at a live uh, global migration map, uh, and this represents uh, the movement of people in multiple ways. They could be moving just... By walking, they could be in boats and other ways. But these also represent these mini-universes of of microbes that are moving. Uh, And in this, at least with the air traffic, you know generally where something has come from, where it's going to. This is a lot less predictable in terms of where people are going, in terms of knowing anything at all about their bodies. At airports, there is some control a lot of times, especially when there's concern of a disease outbreak. Uh, With the migrant flows, it's, it's a lot more difficult. Traffic. Some other things going on. Massive concentration, industrialization of our food production techniques. And we just have to think back a few weeks to, to the romaine lettuce recall, and it was a blanket recall. Normally when we hear a recall, it's a specific company, and it usually has a number associated with it. Uh, and so we could target it, but with romaine lettuce, it was just, if you've got to get rid of it. Don't buy any more for a while. So. There are, in terms of disease patterns and globalization, certainly food production strategies have changed dramatically and play a role here. And then the third area would be global warming and environmental destruction. As we move further and further into parts of the planet where humans generally haven't been, there's always a chance we're going to encounter a new disease, we're going to encounter a new vector that's passing on potentially, that disease. And so that presents new challenges for epidemiologists or for anthropologists who are helping us understand part of these processes and how humans are interacting, how we're interfacing with other populations of insects and animals, bird life that might be spreading disease. Okay, let's go back into our bodies for a moment and think about an illness experience. So it may start like this. You feel an ache somewhere in your bones, in your muscles. You start to feel feverish. Something's not right with your stomach. You're starting to make a mental note of where the closest bathroom is. Usually there's a fairly standard process that kicks in. First, speculation. Okay, is this really something? Do I need to rethink going to work today? What did I just eat? And then we start putting together a storyline to think about what might be the cause here eventually getting us to what we hope is a response, what to do next. Uh, And and this is where it gets really cultural a lot of times. When you start to assess what's happening and then think about what might be causing it, this formation of a narrative is driven by a lot of things other than objective facts. We may have some objective facts. We may have taken our temperature. We may have uh, had a lab test run. So a lot of times, especially when we're talking about Western medicine and people who understand illness through that perspective, then there are objective facts certainly entering the equation. But when we go around the world, and even within our own society, a lot of times there are multiple things going on here besides just gathering the facts, gathering the data. This idea of the social body is important to think about. We uh, anthropologists like to think of the individual body as the one you're born with. Uh, You weren't given a whole lot of choice in that. The social body is the body that's created in response to that world out there, uh, the messages that are sent about what a healthy body should look like, what an attractive body should look like, and so on and so forth. So the social body is the one that's especially interesting when it comes to trying to understand these illness narratives and people making sense of of sickness. Uh, The narrative is constructed by a set of questions. These are just a few. What has happened? Why? Why has it happened to me? Why now? And then, ultimately, what should I do about it? And the questioning and the answers follow the logics of a particular culture. Part of this is related to the things that you think exist in the world. If you have no idea of the theory, uh, germ theory of disease, then that's not going to be part of this equation up here. That's not going to factor into it. But you're still anxious, you're still worried, especially if it's someone that you care about especially if you think this is something serious you need answers and so where are you going to turn to get the answers to build that narrative that leads you to some sort of response that leads you to action so you can think of this storytelling as a way of giving meaning to the experience of ill health when something's wrong with our bodies we need to surround it with meaning explanatory meaning responsive meaning figuring out what to do And the building of meaning comes from the the material that's available culturally and socially to it. Things like metaphor, images. Um, I mentioned evil eye in the title. Certainly prior to Western medicine and the understanding of the role uh, of microbes in making people sick, there was still a need to explain what was happening. Uh, So we can go back to ancient Greek and we see historically through a number of documents the belief that uh, a person's gaze, a person's stare, an intent look can harm another individual. When anyone looks at what is excellent with an envious eye, he fills fills the surrounding atmosphere with a pernicious quality and transmits his own envenomed exhalations. I like that <laughs> into whatever is nearest to him. Uh, and so, I mean, I think this is the sort of language that we would think of when we're thinking of infectious diseases when we're breathing in and breathing out, especially if we're carrying around some potentially bad bacteria or a virus, then we are producing these envenomed exhalations. This, fast forward to 1997, uh, when I interviewed this woman that uh, I eventually got to know well uh, from a community called Sarayaku in the, in the Amazon, she told me a number of stories. I was, I was trying to get at, this is in some of my research, trying to get at uh, the work of shamans. Uh, and the whole way that people conceptualize various illnesses in the Amazon. She told me a couple of stories. One was about the death of her sister. Her sister was about four years old. Uh, Jeanette was five when this happened, and they believed it was a shamanic attack uh, based on envy, and envy is a lot of times connected to the evil eye, that people have an envious eye, a jealous jealous eye if you have something that they don't. Uh, In this case, uh, the story... Preface this a little bit. Uh, she had left her community and had started working uh, in another community in the Amazon. And she was working for a radio station. And she was convinced that uh, this guy who was below her was envious. That he didn't think a woman should have that job. Maybe he didn't think an indigenous woman should have that job. And she started getting sick. And so she went to a doctor. It didn't work. She went to a shaman, and he started a healing process. And this. Is what went on. He sucked a worm with a head on both ends, and he said, look, this is what he sent to harm you. At that point, I began to believe this kind of harm does exist, and the shaman can cure you. Because as she left home, as she became educated, she started questioning whether this traditional medicine actually worked. When I conducted this interview with her, it was in Madison, Wisconsin, and she was thinking through an illness that she had at the time, in Madison that she was convinced was connected back to things that were going on in her community. Um, And so, although she was living in a city that had a large institution, lots of Western medicine practiced in Madison, she was still convinced that these traditional explanations had sway for her. Uh, And so, in our own community, we wouldn't have to travel too far from here. Maybe we won't have to travel any further than this room to find these Culturally variable understandings of what's going on and what's caused it, uh, and maybe what would help. You know that Louisville is a much more diverse city these days. Uh, and then another example, and this takes us back again to the outbreak of the bubonic plague. So, 14th, 14th century Europe, in this case, we're in Italy, we're specifically in Florence, Italy. And this author, Boccaccio, wrote a long account. Some of the stories apparently were partially fictionalized, but this was from the beginning uh, of this book called The Camera. And this was reflecting on the massive amount of death due to the plague, uh, in this case in Italy. Uh, And the reason I put this in is that it takes a really interesting turn You start reading the reactions by some people at this massive amount of death. Wherefore, they banded together and dissociating themselves from all others Form communities and houses where there were no sick and lived a separate and secluded life. they have gone, they regulate this, they want to stay apart from one another. And then here, others, I'm curious, who are those others? What was the difference between this first group and the second group and their very diametrically opposed reactions? Others, the bias of whose minds was in the opposite direction, maintained that to drink freely, frequent, frequent places of public resort, and take their pleasure with song and revel and to laugh and mock at no event was the sovereign remedy for so great an evil that which they affirmed they also put in practice so far as they were able resorting day and night now to this tavern now to that drinking with an entire disregard or rule or measure so same thing happening people being affected in the same way lots of death lots of grieving but the first group says, "Okay, we need to remove ourselves from all of this." The second group says, "Hell with it! We're going to throw ourselves abandoned into the middle of what's going on." What leads humans in the same community to react to respond in very different ways? And then finally, a cholera outbreak. So fast forward again back to 1992, uh, when there was a series over a period of several years, major cholera outbreaks in South America, specifically along. Uh, it started at least along the Pacific coast. So Santiago Rivera started in the middle of the night. He was getting really sick. I'm getting really weak. And he spoke his last words. Because we didn't know what was going on, the people, they said, damn, that Loral, Morale is an indigenous group, that Loral who knows Creole Sorcery has put a spell on him with a cross, he died from the spell, he thought He had killed them with witchcraft, and this is from a book called Stories of the Time of Cholera* by an anthropologist, Charles Briggs. Uh, He came out with another book recently on a rabies outbreak in that same part of the world in Venezuela, Uh, and it's fascinating because he is looking at these diseases that we understand from a Western perspective, cholera caused by bacteria, we know what happens when it gets in the body, but if you don't know any of that context for what cholera is, how it spread, you still have your own narrative. So this is the these are the illness narratives I was referring to earlier. You're starting to put together your understanding of what's happened so that you can figure out what to do. The cholera outbreaks in South America are really interesting to study from these multiple perspectives because they traveled through so many different countries and so many different cultural, social, class groups. Okay, so for the biological perspective, so as anthropologists, we're not saying, okay, the biological side will lead to someone else. That's not our business. They're fundamentally putting biology front and center, but they're saying we need this combined approach. We need to bring in insights from anthropology and sociology. So from a biological perspective, this is what happens when we talk about infectious disease caused by pathogenic microorganisms, organisms, bacteria, viruses, parasites, fungi. Diseases can be spread directly or indirectly from one person to another. Uh, we also have what are called zoonotic diseases that can spread from animals, so things like swine, flu, Ebola. And these are just some examples. There's a long list of infectious diseases, and the list grows. Uh, some of these diseases we thought we had controlled. Think about measles in the United States. If you opened the Courier Journal this morning, you probably read there's now a measles case in Kentucky. Chikungunya that emerged on our radar just a couple of years ago, Zika as well. Uh, So these are some examples in the form of transmission. Anoplasmosis, chikungunya, dengue, Ebola, malaria, bubonic plague, uh, SARS, tuberculosis. Um, And you can see that they're spread in a variety of ways. Could be person to person, animal to person, mother to unborn child. When we start thinking about these modes of transmission, this is, again, a good point to think about social and cultural dimensions of any society what are person-to-person relationships you can think of things like just understanding personal space in one society versus another so that in our own society at what point can I get close enough to you where you start feeling uh, what is it but half something like it yeah once I violate that zone then you're going to back off in plenty of other places though uh, it's much closer and greetings involve kissing and uh, so these are the sorts of cultural, Variables that we need to understand when we talk about transmission: How do people interact with animals? Wet markets. These are notorious places for the, the transmission of particular diseases. When we look back at SARS and how SARS broke out in southern China, it was believed that it broke out in what's called a wet market, where live animals are sold. A lot of times, where blood is handled, even consumed without being cooked. And so, in the case of SARS in China, it was apparently with civic cats, a cat uh, that comes from the wild that people sell in these markets. Uh, So we need need to know some, this just isn't enough to know that it can go from person to person, animal or person mother to unborn child. We need that cultural and social context to understand, well, exactly how does this happen? And then coming on further into anthropology, I've mentioned the word culture. This is just one of the definitions that anthropologists have used to help us understand what are the roles that culture might play. So think of culture as a system of knowledge Beliefs, patterns of behavior, certainly this is important when we talk about illness. Artifacts, institutions that are created, learned, and shared by her people. The important thing here is that culture is something you are exposed to and accumulate throughout your life. You're not born with it. it. has the potential to shape our ideas of what is normal and natural. very important when it comes to a disease outbreak, what we can say and do, and even what we can think. And then, with this overview, we have fields and subfields within anthropology. Medical anthropology is a subfield of cultural anthropology. I'm a cultural anthropologist. So this is what mm-hmm. medical anthropology is. The study of illness and healthcare care from the perspective of anthropology. Fundamental point, in every society, including our own, culture is an important determinant of health, affecting both its material and symbolic dimensions. If you think Western medicine is free from these cultural and social aspects, then just reflect on some of the truly divisive, acrimonious battles we've had over healthcare in our own society. Think about our responses to things like HIV, AIDS, uh, to any really infectious disease. There's always some cultural and social component to how we understand it and how we react, whether we're willing to put resources toward it or not. And then just breaking this idea of culture down a little bit further, these, I use these in my intro class every year, but these are ways of breaking this somewhat abstract term, culture, down to specific things that affect all of us. All of us have this cultural knowledge in some form or another. So, norms, shared ideal about how people ought to act in certain situations. How does one act when there is a case of illness? How do people respond? Do they shun the individual? Do they embrace the individual? There are multiple ways uh, where norms kick in. Values, people's beliefs about the goals or way of life that is desirable for themselves or society, values come into play all the time when there's an illness outbreak. If you look at, say, a country like China versus the United States, China was really slow to react to the SARS outbreak in terms of letting the rest of the world know. One thing I think is is fair to say in terms of distinctions about values is that In China, there's much more emphasis on the collective, the rights of the collective. Uh, In the United States, we tend to be much more individualistic. And then there are varieties of this throughout the world. Values really are important when we wanna understand how a disease might break out and how people are gonna respond. Common understandings, usually know how to interpret one another's behavior, classification of reality, what's out there in the world. Uh, If you don't believe that there are supernatural beings out there that can make you sick, then that's a very, very different sort of understanding of where a disease might come from. In other words, did it come from a shamanic dart? Did it come from a god that was angry? Or did it come from a bacteria or a virus that didn't understand the science? World Worldviews, interpretations of reality, what caused this outbreak to occur? You can imagine West Africa a few years ago as Ebola was spreading, and people were dying. If you know anything about Ebola, even you know it's a horrific death. So by the thousands, eventually, people were dying. How are you making sense of this? We've got plenty of testimonials from West Africa where people were convinced they had done something to make God angry, and they needed to correct it. And so both their worldview and their response gets driven by this. Just a, a list here of how cultural and social dimensions play a role. They shape shape our behaviors, diets, sexual practices, land uses, in myriad ways our social and cultural systems shape these sort of things, and you can imagine that things like this have an impact on health, right? They reshape our physical environment, the way that we use, the way that we regulate or don't regulate. If you look at, regardless of how you feel about the current administration, I think it's safe to say that it has a very different approach to the physical environment than the previous administration. Things are, are being deregulated. Uh, whether you support that or not, it's totally up to you. But point is that these—it's variable our relationship with the environment. A lot of times determined at a macro scale, but also determined by individual or community preferences for forests, parks, protection, water, influence. They influence human responses to infectious disease. So to go back to the case in Italy, do I hide, get away from this, or do I They have evolutionary impacts on our bodies, so cultural things like diets, um, where we live. We know that as humans migrated out of Africa and were exposed to different environments, more or less sunshine, different food types, and so on, our bodies changed, right? And we're continuing to evolve. A role in changing the evolutionary history of pathogens. So, the things that we do, the decisions we make, the medicines that we administer, these affect the evolutionary path of pathogens pathogens pathogen as well. Think about when your doctor says, Here's your antibiotics, take all of them, right? Because if you don't, what? It'll reoccur because, yeah, you didn't kill them all, and there may be a mutation, there may be uh, the hardiest of the bacteria that are making you sick, they still be in there.
0: That was Professor Francis Hutchins, cultural anthropologist and professor of sociology at Bellarmine University. Sorry that our show is too short to squeeze the entire lecture in, so we will present the final few minutes of his talk in the next episode of Bench Talk. So keep an eye out for it. song you're listening to is Sembrador Divino by Chogo El Badeño and it's available on freemusicarchive.org. that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word, benchtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud, so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives. That's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m., that's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.